Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Later in the program, breaking down what went wrong in Georgia's primary election and looking ahead to the future. It's really hard, as in Georgia, to roll out new voting machines and have new voting rules when it's not a pandemic, but to try and do so in the midst of a pandemic when everything is being politicized from wearing masks to, you know, just how you're supposed to walk down the street. University of California at Irvine Law Professor Richard Hassan joins me, as well as election integrity advocate Marilyn Marks. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first, as always, an update on Georgia's COVID-19 numbers. Data from the State Department of Health indicates there are 81,291 confirmed COVID-19 cases here in the state. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,805. And now there are 11,051 hospitalized. Again, this is all according to the Georgia Department of Health. In other news, Dr. Lisa Herring is now the new superintendent for the Atlanta Public Schools. She was sworn in earlier today by Judge Patsy Porter. So I humbly and honorably and with a great level of confidence accept this opportunity to lead us, to lead with you and for you, to vision cast, to explore, to be challenged to come to the table, agreeable or disagreeable, but to leave knowing that we have done what is right for our children. So when the history books look back on this day and these two unique seasons, Chair Estevez and Chair Collins and board members, they will look at Atlanta Public Schools and they will be able to testify that we brought two seasons together But beyond bringing two seasons together, we took a history of a system that I have admired all of my life. And we've taken our challenges and our championships and we've elevated it to the next tier. And that if they want to know if we are well, they won't have to look to us. They will look to the children. And a note of disclosure, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. And finally, today is July 1st, and if not for the pandemic, the Atlanta Braves would have been playing the Los Angeles Angels this 4th of July weekend at Truist Park. And the Braves' longest-serving usher, as well as the longest-serving employee, Walter Banks, no doubt would have been involved. In fact, he's been with the Braves for what is now 55 years. Mr. Banks has welcomed thousands of fans to multiple stadiums for the last five decades, from Fulton County Stadium to Turner Field and now Truist Park. Last year, he told WABE's Emil Moffitt his mission is simple, just to spread a little kindness. You can go to all the other stadiums and all the 
including football or basketball, and you remember the experience you received just because you showed a smile, a greeting, just a little tip of kindness. Well, there's no baseball this weekend, but that doesn't mean here at Closer Look and Public Broadcast in Atlanta, we should forget saying happy birthday, Walter Banks, 81 years, my good man. And don't worry about baseball, it'll be back, but we appreciate all you've done throughout your career. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Now, at the time of this broadcast, Colorado, Utah, and Oklahoma, well, they're going to hold their primaries today. Here in Georgia, you might remember our last primary. Long lines, non-working voting machines, and undertrained staff were among the many problems, not only here in Fulton County, but around the state. It's frustrating, but I was insistent that I was going to wait in line, tough it out. I'm, I felt bad for the people that got stuck in the rain. It just started pouring. It was awful. But I voted. I, I just, I feel like these two hours are nothing compared to my ancestors that died for us to be out here. I did receive an absentee ballot, but I just didn't know if I could really trust that process. You know, with every, with all the faulty voting and different things that have gone on during elections in the past, I just felt like me physically being here would guarantee that my vote is counted. I uh, got my absentee application in the mail and followed the instructions on the form to actually submit via email. So I emailed my uh, application for an absentee ballot to the Fulton Board. Uh, didn't receive one. And then on the day that the AJC uh, published its article uh, about the issues, I received an email from Fulton County stating, oh, hey, we found your uh, application. Um, This is about, I guess, two weeks ago now. Never received my absentee ballot. So here I am today. Now, perhaps some of those problems will now be alleviated. Why? Because now we'll have the largest voting precinct ever in the state of Georgia. As announced on Monday, State Farm Arena, home of the Atlanta Hawks and the occasional Disney on Ice, will be transformed into a polling location for Fulton County voters. So voters can cast ballots for the August runoff elections and early voting for November's general election. Now here's Fulton County Director of Elections Richard Barron speaking to WABE's Emil Moffitt. I think this is going to be a monumental addition because, first of all, we're going to have probably two entrances. And speaking of November, we're going to use the bowl where the basketball floor normally sits. We're going to be able to put a couple hundred machines down there, 25 check-in sites, and we'll be able to socially distance. We've already talked with the Hawks about how we can do it. The Hawks are really excited about participating in this, and offering this up was very generous on their part. They're going to have their own I voted stickers uh, that'll be special to the people that vote there. And I think I think it's going to be a, a, a different experience to vote at State Farm Arena. And I think people from all over the county are probably going to go vote there. They'll either jump on Marta. That parking's going to be free to also to, to vote there. And the Hawks are going to market this. They said they're going to market it like the Lakers are coming to town. So I imagine that... This is going to be probably the premier early voting site in the country for those sites that or states that do early voting. And I think having the Hawks want to participate and lend staff to help 
um, just says a lot about their organization and commitment to the community. Well, we shall see. Still, many Americans are distrusting of the nation's overall election process, from voter suppression to vulnerable voting machines and everything in between. And so we welcome back to the program University of California at Irvine law professor Richard Hassan, author of Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Professor, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's great to be back with you. Let's begin here. Voting in a pandemic in a huge election year. Talk about the perfect storm. What's been your observation so far this election season around the nation? Well, you know, I I sat opposite you in February and uh, I was already very worried about the election. And that was before most of us had really thought about COVID-19. And uh, in uh, a lot of ways, it's made things worse and really shown the vulnerabilities in our system. Uh, it's really hard, as in Georgia, to roll out new voting machines and have new voting rules mm-hmm. um, when it's not a pandemic. But to try and do so in the midst of a pandemic when when everything is being politicized from wearing masks to, um, you know, just how you're supposed to walk down the street. Uh, it's really hard. Uh, conducting an election is hard to start with. Uh, doing it fairly and doing it under these conditions has been really challenging. And uh, I would say it's not just Georgia. But Georgia's uh, been one of the places that's been of great concern uh, because uh, it didn't look very good uh, in your in your primary in terms of people's access to the ballot and uh, ability to be able to cast a vote that's going to be counted. No, it did not. In fact, here's a line about Georgia's primary Tuesday from earlier this month. Quote, the Georgia contest offered the most alarming preview to date of what could happen in November without major overhauls, training and planning. How much truth is in that statement? Well, I think a lot of truth is in that statement. One of the things that we saw um, was the finger pointing between your Secretary of State and the uh, Fulton County election officials Mm -hmm. as to who's responsible. One of the things, uh, and I make this point in a a piece I recently had in the New York Times, one of the features of American democracy, forget the voter suppression for a minute, we just have this fragmentation. There's some federal rules. There's a state uh, uh, Secretary of State or a state body that oversees elections, but a lot happens on the local level. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the Secretary of State or the election officials at the state level training the local officials on how to use uh, the new voting technology, or if you don't have adequate staffing at the local level, or you, you can't find poll workers, it's it becomes a real problem. And it's easy to say that the buck uh, passes to someone else because, well, no, that wasn't my fault. It was someone else's fault uh, somewhere else down the line. We need more um, responsibility being taken for the problems that we see. So this goes beyond just those long lines and absentee ballots that arrived too late or never arrived at all. Uh, you look around the rest of the nation and each state is doing something. We'll get into that in just a moment. But is there, through your lens, is there a at least one or two uniformed ideas or processes that should that every state should be following? Well, so I was part of a group that convened at the end of February, uh, right after we spoke, and, and we worked through the pandemic remotely. And we issued a report called Fair Elections During a Crisis. You can Google that and you can find that report. And one of our top recommendations is that states need to be preparing now for multiple ways for voters to be able to vote safely. Uh, that means not only do you have to have the absentee ballot system in place, 
uh, so that anyone who wants to vote by mail can do so safely. You've got to prepare for in-person voting to be safe as well, because we saw in Georgia, and we've seen it around the country, lots of people either can't or won't vote by mail. And so you have to have a system to vote in person. And that system requires poll workers, many of whom are older Americans who may not uh, get there. What's your backup plan? Let's start uh, trying to get high school students and college students. You need to have a plan B because we don't know what the election is going to look like in uh, November. There's got to be multiple ways to vote safely. Is it too late for a plan B? I don't think it's too late for plan B, but we're running out of time. Mm -hmm. So one thing we saw, let's talk about uh, Georgia's absentee ballots. In 2016, 36,000 people voted by mail. In uh, the latest primary, it was over a million people uh, Mm -hmm. voted by mail. And it's going to be more in November. I'm not so worried about your absentee ballots. uh, I'm not not so worried about your uh, uh, runoff. I'm worried about November because there's going to be huge demand. Well, since we've gotten there, let's talk about the absentee ballots, because here in Fulton County, and there are all kinds of issues with the absentee ballot applications. So here's an exchange I had back on May 19th with Fulton County Elections Director Richard Barron. Some voters opted to scan in the the request for an absentee ballot. I have emails from listeners saying I haven't even received a response. Yeah, there is no that box apparently from the way it is set up there is no confirmation email that goes out the only way a confirmation can be received is if it's faxed Uh, the group email box uh, from my understanding is has it does not allow for a confirmation email to be sent out how will folks know (laughs) they can well they can go to the my voter page uh, Secretary of State's My Voter page and check to see the status. Uh, one, uh, one of the things is a lot of the, the ballots have been mailed. They are being mailed from Arizona. What the process happened is that Why the are state they coming from out, Arizona? Well, the state mailed out all the absentee ballot applications, which was appreciated by all of the counties. We Because they took on that expense. They then... Uh, then we process the applications. Uh, the state contracted with Runbeck. Uh, they are out of Arizona to do this mailing project. So once the counties enter those applications and an issue date is set by that data entry, then the mailing house mails the ballots. and we know that it's taking at least seven days after that issue date for ballots to arrive in Georgia. And I've heard up to 14 days. Director Barron, how much confidence do you have in the system and come June 9th? I I think that this has been a challenge unlike one we've ever had. I think that we will the, the ballots are going to arrive. Um, I think all of us have had, you know, Oregon, uh, Washington, California, Colorado, those states are professionals at ballot by mail. They've been, Oregon's been doing it for 20 years and they don't even have polling places. So, and some of those states in the West warned everyone that, you know, it, it, it is not going to go smoothly your first ballot by mail election if you change overnight there were plenty of articles out there that said 
it isn't. It, and, and I think we, we've got some growing pains with it. Okay. So, <laughs> Professor, first of all, I have no idea where to find a fax machine, number one. Number two, ballot professionals out west. I don't know if we have ballot professionals here in Georgia. But what did you make of what Director Barron had to say, the explanation for the long wait? And still, some people did not get their absentee ballots by June 9th. That conversation took place on May 19th. I'm not surprised by what he said. Um, it is really hard. I think he was just candid. It is really hard to ramp up absentee balloting, you know, 8, 10, 15 times what you were expecting. And so that, that's why the planning has to happen now. That's why the finger pointing is happening now. Here's the most important thing I'm going to tell your listeners for our whole conversation. We need to flatten the absentee ballot request curve. Request your absentee ballot just as soon as you are allowed to do so. Mm -hmm. And then you have a better chance of getting it and have a backup plan to go to a physical polling place if you can't vote by absentee. I mean, I think I'm not a huge believer in absentee ballots generally as a way of voting, but for this election, I think it's the safest way to go. So try and get that ballot. But uh, there are only a certain number of companies that are doing this, and mm -hmm. I, I'm not surprised they have to use a vendor in Arizona, but that takes a long time for mail to get across the country in the middle of a pandemic. Don't wait to the last minute or you might be disenfranchised. And we should note, for instance, in California, where there was a record 72 percent of the ballots were cast by mail in their March primary. Now, there are those who oppose to the all mail-in voting. That includes President Donald Trump, who has cited mail-in ballots can spur cheating or a fraud. Here's what he said. Not too long ago. When you do uh, all mail-in voting ballots, you're asking for fraud. People steal them out of mailboxes. People print them, and then they sign them, and they give them in. And the people don't even know where they're double-counted. People take them away. They force people to vote. You and I have had a conversation before how rhetoric like that, and from both political parties, to be fair, because in, in your book you talk about that, but it's this type of rhetoric that adds to... Americans' distrust of the entire election process. Yeah, these comments are especially irresponsible from President Trump because uh, there is no good evidence that we have massive fraud with absentee ballots. There are isolated cases. There's one going on now in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, it was easily caught. There was one in North Carolina in 2018 in a congressional race. But uh, there's no printing of thousands of ballots. The, the president and the attorney general have irresponsibly said that foreign governments are going to send in uh, thousands of absentee ballots. Mm -hmm. There's no way. I mean, every ballot uh, is printed on a certain kind of paper. There's ballot tracking to make sure that the envelopes are correct. You'd have to forge signatures. Uh, you'd have to know which races to vote in. I mean, it's just uh, it's ludicrous. And what it does is it undermines people's confidence in the process. And I think it's actually going to serve to disenfranchise Trump's own supporters who are not going to trust the process of voting by mail a process that President Trump and most of his close allies have been using themselves personally, they're going to try to vote in person and maybe the polling place is going to have too long a line or maybe they're not going to feel safe in the midst of a pandemic to vote. I think it's self-defeating for him to say this and it serves to delegitimize the process. What if he's ahead on election night in a state like Pennsylvania mm -hmm. with um, the, the in-person votes and then a week later, after they finally finish counting all the ballots, Biden's ahead. Is Trump going to claim that those ballots are fraudulent and he's actually won the election? I'm really worried about 
things like that when he casts these kinds of aspersions over the voting process without any uh, good evidence. Since the last time we we spoke and we talked about, because you outlined some major factors that are a threat to the integrity of American elections, you talked about voter suppression, you talked about pockets of incompetence in election administration, we talked about that, and as something you say, just old-fashioned and newfangled dirty tricks, including the threat of foreign interference or social media, inflammatory rhetoric, which we've talked about, it doesn't help that we're also in a pandemic. So, again, this perfect storm. So, Professor, someone listening says, OK, well, then you've said here are some examples that states could use all the states. But at the end of the day, how do you instill public trust in the voting system? So resources and transparency are among the most important things. Uh, right now, Congress has allocated about $400 million towards uh, the increased costs of uh, voting by mail and having safe polling places during a pandemic. Estimates are that we actually need 2 to $4 billion. People are going to request vote by mail ballots across the country, and there's going to be additional expenses. If they're not funded, we have a bigger problem where you know things are going to be done in a sloppy way. I mean, just look at what happened in Georgia now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need resources, training. The state needs to make sure that counties know how to use. A big part of the problem in Georgia was that the e-poll books, the things that check, uh, the, the, the machine that checks to make sure you're ad, 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 actually registered to vote, those weren't functioning right. We had that same problem here in Los Angeles County where I live. Uh, all that needs to be done. We need resources to make sure, a training and transparency. We need to know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, who's going to be sending out these ballots, how can you check, and the more information that voters have, uh, the better I think we're going to be in terms of having public confidence that things are being done fairly. When you try and cover up your problems, as we've seen in some places, then it makes things worse. Is there any federal legislation? And I think I might know the answer to this. Is there some federal legislation you would like to see from Congress that would help in this process? Well, the funding for sure. I mean, uh, there's been a partisan divide over uh, uh, legislation that House Democrats proposed that would require every state to offer absentee balloting to voters who want it. I don't think we're going to see anything like that. Uh, You know, if we're talking about triage for November, what we need now is money, training, and a plan. Because, you know, like some of the things I talked about in election meltdown, like foreign Mm -hmm. interference, that could still happen. Mm -hmm. We need to plan. What if if, uh, there's, uh, you know, some kind of cyber attack on election day? Still could happen. What's the plan B? What's the paper backup if the voting machines go down? Well, let's talk about the cyber attack aspect of all this because Georgia, this is the first year they're using those fancy new machines and depending on whom you ask, they are great machines from the vendor and not so great. Get to look at the choices, your selections, but you don't get to keep any type of paper receipt. What's your take on that? Well, I think taking a paper receipt is a bad idea because then, uh, you know, then it becomes easier to pay people to vote or to force them to vote in a particular way when you can prove it. Uh, that's not my problem with the voting machines. It's more that it's very complicated, right? So you have poll workers who are going to have to work these machines. And uh, if they're not working right, you know, are you going to have a paper backup? And, and the other problem I have is, uh, as you uh, may know, these machines produce a barcode that gets counted. We need to know what the rules are going to be if there's a recount. Are you going to just look at the barcode, which is what I think Georgia is saying they're going to do? Or are you going to look at the actual names that are printed on the ballot? One thing that every voter should do in Georgia after they voted on one of these machines is look at your ballot and make sure that the name that's printed on the ballot of the candidates you voted for matches who you actually voted for, uh, because there's concern about those kinds of things. 
Um, if you vote absentee, you're not using those machines, so you have mm -hmm. that advantage. Uh, but then you have the you have to return that ballot, and that and and we know that uh, if you vote by mail, generally you're more likely to have your ballot tossed because you haven't complied with a particular rule. And we know that minority voters are more likely to have their ballots tossed uh, than white voters. And so you know there's no perfect solution here, mm -hmm. uh, and we have a far from perfect election system being run, as you say, in the midst of a pandemic. Speaking of that pandemic, I also want to get to this for a moment because a lot of counties had to close or consolidate polling locations due to concerns of uh, the, the pandemic. And for some folks, they said this is all part of, intentional or not, voter suppression, because if folks have to travel, and we're talking about once you get outside of, of maybe your urban populations, particularly in the rural part of Georgia, if folks have to travel 30 and 40 miles or there's one polling location for 500,000 registered voters, that is problematic. Officials should know that. And maybe folks will be deterred when they pull up and they see long lines or it's raining. And some see that as a form of voter suppression. So, you know, some of it might be intentional, some of it isn't. But at the end of the day, if you can't vote, uh, you still can't vote. So, you know, I'm, I'm less interested in pointing fingers in terms of particular instances and asking what can voters do to be able to make sure they can vote. So here's one thing they can do besides cast an absentee ballot, early voting. Uh, not mm -hmm. every state has a good early voting, but Georgia has early voting. Don't wait till Election Day. You know, don't go on a weekend when you're not working or sometime that you can spare some hours and uh or vote by mail, uh, election day could be a fiasco. And because Georgia is offering other means of voting besides election day voting, I think it's uh, better to take advantage of that and try to find a way to be able to cast a ballot before election day. Are you optimistic that by November or the results of November that, I won't use the word smooth, but are you optimistic that it will be better than what we've seen thus far at the time of this conversation? Yeah, there are 10,500 different election jurisdictions in the United <laughs> yeah. States. So, you know, we have this hyper-decentralized system. In some places, it's going to go smoothly. In a number of places, it's not. And, you know, in terms of people being disenfranchised, how, whether or not you can cast a ballot that's going to be accurately counted depends a lot on where you live. I think the fact that Georgia had such uh, national attention uh, is really putting pressure on state and local election officials to make sure they get it right. And so I don't want to use the word optimistic, but I'm hopeful that Georgia's learned its lesson and that things are going to be better. But then again, um, you see the Georgia legislature fighting back. They, they don't necessarily want uh, absentee ballot applications to be sent to every voter. Right. So mm -hmm. now they're you know, they're, they're switching the system over, you know. And so I don't know. I'm I, I hope it's not a close election, because if it's a close election, then we look under the hood and we see all the ugly things. And so. Uh, I mean, some of us will look under the hood anyway, but, uh, you know, for the general public, if it's close, it's going to be very, very ugly. And then it reminds you of a time where we had to have the Supreme Court weigh in on an election outcome. Uh, before I let you go, Professor, I do want you again to let listeners know by looking up fair elections during a crisis. What can they get out of that? So this was a, a, a uh, cross ideological, cross uh, discipline group of scholars and leaders. And we talked about uh, 14 recommendations that need to happen. Some things like social media companies need to be removing voting disinformation, as we saw some companies are doing when the president's putting up false statements. Uh, some of it's about what election officials need to do, some about what voters need to do. And it's not too late. 
We're a little more than four months before the election. Now's the time to pressure your election officials to be transparent, pressure Congress to be funding adequately so we can have our, uh, you know, a fair election. And making sure that leaders are responsible. When we hear claims of voter suppression, voter fraud, let's look into it and let's see what can be done so that we can have a fair election in November. From the University of California at Irvine, law professor Richard Hassan, author of Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. He has an opinion piece coming out in New York Times. It's going to be in Sunday's paper, July 5th. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Now, we begin today's program with University of California at Irvine law professor Richard Hassan, author of Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and a Threat to American Democracy. He offered an overview of Georgia's election process after the many problems experienced on Primary Tuesday. Here's his take on possible solutions. Well, the funding for sure. I mean, uh, there's been a partisan divide over uh, uh, legislation that House Democrats proposed that would require every state to offer absentee balloting to voters who want it. I don't think we're going to see anything like that. Uh, You know, if we're talking about triage for November, what we need now is money, training and a plan. Because, you know, like some of the things I talked about in election meltdown, like foreign mm-hmm. interference, that could still happen. Mm-hmm. We need to plan. What if, what if uh, there's, uh, you know, some kind of cyber attack on Election Day? Still could happen. What's the plan B? What's the paper backup if the voting machines go down? And now we'll take a deeper dive into another concern, and that is Georgia's new voting machines, which cost the state about $107 million. And yes, there were issues. Now, here's what Fulton County Elections Chief Richard Barron said on Closer Look last week. The machines that weren't working, a lot of it had to do with plugging too many machines into the same circuit. You can use different outlets, but if those are running on the same circuit, this new system draws much more amperage than than the old system. We didn't have to worry about electrical issues with the old system. This new system, because you have you can have a number of printers printing at the same time. You've got the BMD screens that need to be powered. And you're also um, continually charging the uninterruptible power supply battery. That, That draws a lot of power. And as we continue our discussion about the voting machines, cybersecurity, and other concerns, I'm joined by election integrity activist Marilyn Marks. She's also the vice president and executive director for the Coalition for Good Governance. You'll learn more about their work in just a moment. Marilyn Marks, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Rose. I appreciate your having me. Let's begin here. From the Washington Post a few months ago, they quoted someone you may know, Bruce Schneider, fellow and lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He's quoted as saying, 
Every part of the voting process is vulnerable. This includes the voter registration process, the voting itself, the vote tabulation, and the results reporting system, close quote. Merlin Marks, I'll ask you this, how much truth is in that statement? More than we want to believe, Rose. It is absolutely true. And unfortunately, our election officials in Georgia and quite frankly, across the country, don't want to believe it, don't want to admit it, and don't want to take precautions. And some of the precautions are so simple, but there is a resistance to acknowledging that the vulnerabilities are there and that the vulnerabilities can be mitigated. Well, let's back up because I know you heard about all the problems that Georgia had here this past primary Tuesday. What'd you make of that? You were here. What'd you make of it? Unfortunately, Rose, nothing that we saw was surprising. It is exactly what we have been trying to warn the Secretary of State about and the state legislature about since April of 2019, when they first began to consider these extremely complex new voting systems that have at least four times as many electronic components as the previous system, which added its own problems, no doubt. Nothing was surprising. We had offered solutions We had warned against this, and we are still very concerned that November is going to be at least as bad, if not worse, unless simple steps are taken to mitigate the complexities, to mitigate the obvious breakdown of machines that is going to happen. So you were just playing Rick Barron Mm -hmm. talking about the massive electrical needs, which we warned about months and months ago. And it wasn't being taken seriously by the Secretary of State or the State Election Board or local officials. But Rick is extreme is right on that. But guess what doesn't require a rewiring of the system? A handmarked paper ballot and a ballpoint pen. Mm-hmm. We don't need a lot of electrical for to make a ballpoint pen or a felt tip pen work and a paper ballot to be distributed. But we're going to get to that in just a moment, because what I'd like to do is let's work our way through the Georgia voter experience. We have to be fair in beginning with a pandemic. So the desire was to encourage voters, Maryland, to submit absentee ballots. But the problem began when the application process was also a little challenging. I do want to play Richard Barron again, because here was his explanation. Some voters opted to scan in the, the request for an absentee ballot. I have emails from listeners saying I haven't even received a response. Yeah, there is no that box. Apparently, from the way it is set up, there is no confirmation email that goes out. The only way a confirmation can be received is if it's faxed. Uh, The group email box, uh, from my understanding, is has it does not allow for a confirmation email to be sent out. Well, how will folks know? <laughs> they can well they can go to the my voter page. Uh, Secretary of State's my voter page and check to see the status. Uh, one one of the things is a lot of the the ballots have been mailed. They are being mailed from Arizona. What the process happened is that Why the are they state coming from Arizona? Well, the state mailed out all the absentee ballot applications, which was appreciated by all of the counties. We because they took on that expense. They then uh, then we processed the applications. Uh, the state contracted with Runbeck. Uh, they are out of Arizona to do this mailing project. So once the counties enter those applications, 
and an issue date is set by that data entry, then the mailing house mails the ballots. And we know that it's taking at least seven days after that issue date for ballots to arrive in Georgia. And I've heard up to 14 days. Director Barron, how much confidence do you have in the system and come June 9th? I I think that this has been a challenge unlike one we've ever had. I think that we will the the ballots are going to arrive um i think all of us have had you know oregon uh washington california colorado those states are professionals at ballot by mail they've been oregon's been doing it for 20 years and they don't even have polling places so and some of those states in the west warned everyone that you know, it, it, it is not going to go smoothly your first ballot by mail election if you change overnight. There were plenty of articles out there that said it isn't, it, and, and I think we, we've got some growing pains with it. Now, that is Fulton County Elections Director Richard Barron before Georgia's June 9th primary. And Marilyn, you, you heard what he had to say. Well, let me ask you this. Are you a proponent of all mail-in voting? What's your take on that? I'm, I'm not, Rose. Um, before I moved back to the South, I was in Colorado for a number of years, mm-hmm. and I was there during the fight for uh, all mail ballots. And I am a proponent of using mail ballots, you know, when needed, when necessary, when people want to to have reason to want to do that. But the most secure way to vote is in the polling place with handmarked paper ballots in your neighborhood polling place. And there, quite frankly, I worry about um, uh, mail ballot security and particularly coercion. I saw a massive amount of voter coercion in, in Colorado that I don't like that goes with the mail ballot system. However, that said, this year with the pandemic, mm-hmm. we have um, really promoted the idea that mail ballot voting is the best way to vote this year because Mm -hmm. of the pandemic and the need for public health concerns that override some of the security issues that we worry about. But Georgia needs to up its game on handling mail ballots, quite frankly. Pretty sympathetic with some of the things that Rick had to say there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he was very he was very modest in the way that he talked about the issues. Quite frankly, there, that application process, it was a good idea for the secretary to send out applications, but he did it suddenly without planning, without talking to the counties and left counties like Fulton, you know, unprepared for this deluge of mail ballot applications. And that really was not necessary. Let's talk about these machines. So on Primary Tuesday, nearly 30,000 of these machines were out. They're referred to as ballot marking devices, BMDs, that they were in use. And as you heard, there were problems. So, Marilyn, and I may know the answer to this, but to your knowledge, what are the major concerns that folks like your organization have with these types of machines? And, you know, to be fair, there are only three vendors in the entire nation that states can really choose from. Or is that not true? You, you just raise your eyebrows at me. 
Um, Well, while there are three major vendors, they all sell a variety of products. And Dominion and ESNS and Heart, uh, Clear Ballot, they, they sell a very good product for running elections. The gold standard is handmarked paper ballots counted on the scanners that they sell, uh, tabulated by the servers that they sell. They sell good systems, but, but Georgia bought uh, unreliable systems. You don't like Dominion? No, no, Dominion's okay. Dominion's okay. ESNS is okay. Clear ballot. They all make a decent voting system. What we don't like are all of these add-ons that then undermine the system. Dominion makes a handmarked paper ballot system. In fact, it is, you know, essentially it was used for the million plus mail ballots that came into the, uh, came into the system. And so we do have a big issue that Rose, nobody's talked about yet that I want to come back to, but it's not that Dominion itself was the problem. It was the selection of touchscreen machines to mark your ballot for you. Yes, touchscreen machines are appropriate for people with um, assistive technology needs, but for those people who can hand mark a paper ballot, that is the best system. It's far cheaper, it's less complex, it's something that doesn't require a lot of training of poll workers, and it is auditable. It is all this additional complexity that's creating the problem, Rose. Well, I want to get back to your concern, but what, what's your response to someone listening saying, but handmark, wouldn't that take a long time to tabulate? No, 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 no. It's fast. It's just as fast mm-hmm. because the, um, the computers read it through optical scanning mm-hmm. and it, can, it, it is um, just as fast as the QR codes, reading the QR codes. Um, you know, it's, it's not an issue of speed. And in fact, uh, Rose, it's the way it's done in, you know, 80 plus percent of America. Now, I want to get into cybersecurity for a moment because Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has repeatedly said these machines are not connected to the Internet, but there are tablets that poll workers have to use in addition, but those are connected to the Internet. So are we still at risk for some type of cyber interference? Absolutely. And, and being connected to the internet um, is just, it's a bit of a red herring, Rose, because all of these systems are indirectly connected to the internet. They're programmed with internet connected memory cards, but that also kind of even discounts the idea that there can be insiders that don't even need internet access that um, can, can create hacks, et cetera, but also we're at risk for malicious programming um, and so being connected to the internet has, has almost nothing to do with how vulnerable the system is. And it is, it is something that the secretary is used as a deflection, but, um, absolutely there is no paper trail, a reliable paper trail here. And that becomes the problem. There is no voter marked, hand marked ballot that we know what the voter really intended um, to how that voter intended to vote. And therefore, there is not a trail that can be relied on if, if we do find out that there are hacking problems with the machine. You cannot hack a paper ballot that's marked by ballpoint pen or felt tip pen. You can certainly count it 
with a computer. That's what you should do. Mm -hmm. But then you need to audit it to make sure that that computer was not misprogrammed. You just mentioned you had another concern that you wanted to get to other than cybersecurity. Yeah. What is that concern? So, so Rose, this is something that the, that the press is not quite on to yet, but it is the biggest problem that I've actually seen in Georgia in the three years I've been working on this. So the new voting system, mm -hmm. secretary um, uh, for mail ballot counting put in a software application that purposely does not count a lot of legal votes. What happens is when the mail ballot comes in, the scanner reads the votes, it records the votes, and then it awaits tabulation of the votes. Well, the secretary has put in a software application that if your vote is a check mark or an X or a little squiggle, or maybe you used a light colored pen or didn't fill in the oval completely, while that vote is absolutely recorded, it's seen by the scanner, his software overlay says, well, don't count it if it's any of those things. Don't count those legitimate votes. Is this and software that comes from Dominion, from their whole system, or is this something that you're saying the Secretary of State's here in Georgia, obviously, has put in additional. The, it's one of the options that comes with the Dominion system, and but they should not have turned it on. The, that option was meant for hand-marked ballots in a polling place. And what it was meant to do, Rose, is that when you marked your ballot in the polling place, mm -hmm. and let's say you made a light mark or a check mark, and it just wasn't fully, it, it wasn't fully clear, or maybe it was clear, but the machine wanted it to be greater. You put it in, the, the ballot uh, is rejected back at you in the polling place as a voter and, and sends you a message, hey, go make those marks a little clearer. The problem is that software that was intended to be used in the polling place was turned on for mail ballots where you weren't there to correct your ballot. So now, it rejected. How did you all find this out, Marilyn? So um, one of our colleagues, Jean Dufort, was on the ballot review panel. She was representing the Democratic Party of Morgan County. She was reviewing the ballots and a very long, complex story short, she began to realize that in those review of the light marks that the machine was programmed just to not count certain valid marks. And we have seen this all over the state. We've confirmed it in many counties. And I saw it with my own eyes in Habersham County in their recount last weekend. Um, the, um, the Associated Press did write a story about it before we knew as much as we know now. And um, let's be really clear, despite what the secretary says, Georgia law is a good law. It protects all the voters. And it says, if the voter intent can be determined, you count that vote. That's the way it ought to be, right? That you count a vote if it's clear who you were right, you, whether you marked it with an X or a check or a squiggle or a little circle, you count it. Well, what we are seeing is an enormous amount of difficulty because the counties didn't understand the software. They don't know how to handle it. And it has resulted in, and you may have reported on this, Rose, many counties are now hand duplicating, hand duplicating scores of thousands of ballots 
because they're being rejected and they don't understand this software application that's being applied. And it is the software that's creating the problem, not the voter and not the scanner. And this hand duplication then creates its own problems of a lot of poll worker time that's not necessary and human error. One, I also imagine someone saying, well, then how do we know that the certification of these elections is accurate? Rose, it's not. It's not. Yesterday in Gwinnett County, mm-hmm. we witnessed just one of the worst things I have seen in my 11, 12 years of doing this. The election board in Gwinnett County had a recount where there were 104,000 ballots cast. The difference between the two, the two of the candidates is 13, 13 votes. They refused, they refused to go see how many votes the software had suppressed. You all sent them a letter too, asking them that the planned certification of the recount be postponed. We did. They ignored it. They refused to discuss it. They, um, they wouldn't even raise a question about it. And in fact, um, there was an email sent by Christy Royston, who is the election director up there, to the election board that, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, basically said, oh, we don't know why the software does this, but hey, it's close. Yeah, it's close. Um, it's 13 votes that I'm, I'm sure that if the right things were done, um, those, those vote totals would change. Might there be a lawsuit, you think, coming soon? I, you know, it, these laws, the lawsuits for doing something like this are so extremely costly mm-hmm. and that it's hard for a candidate to justify the six-digit, you know, legal actions that, that are, need to be taken when all it would have taken is for Ms. Royston and that bipartisan board to say, you know what, let's figure out how to make sure that we've got all the ballots counted. And I was really disappointed that the board just didn't care, but we've seen the same thing happen in in DeKalb County. You know, we had uh, some very close sheriff's races there. Mm -hmm. DeKalb chose to do the same thing. Fulton did the same thing. They didn't really have the recount in, in front of them. But, you know, I'm very disappointed that these county election boards are just accepting software applications that violate Georgia law and uh, and that they are willing to say, oh, well, if some votes didn't count, so what? You know what? We cannot have that happen in August or November. Another issue with some of the voting machines obviously not being operable was that many polling locations did not have enough paper provisional ballots for voters as well. Again, it goes back to the backup, to the backup, to the backup. Yes, <laughs> yes ma'am. The backup is, is, is the deal here. So, so much of this, I mean, I don't know what percentage, but I will just venture a guess of 75 to 90% of these problems with the lines, with the provisional ballots could have been solved with one simple thing. And that is, as you said, a paper backup of the poll book so that when they knew, they knew that these electronic poll books, the one you are talking about connected to the internet, they knew that they were gonna fail. They failed every single election day where they've been tried. They knew they were gonna fail, but they, the secretary of state 
refused to put in a paper backup whole book. They keep claiming, oh yeah, we have a paper backup. Well, they have a backup of the list of voters who live in that precinct, Mm -hmm. but they don't have a list that they can use when the voter shows up and the machines go down because that list is not updated for early voting and people who have voted by mail. So they don't, they don't, they can't use that paper. All they need to do is print. And we had asked the court numerous times for this. We'd ask the secretary of state numerous times to do this, just print a paper poll book that is a backup of what is in those poll pads and use it if the machines go down. Now that would have, that would have solved the problems as well as they, they could have just issued paper emergency ballots and got people through. The lines would have been very minimal. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the Coalition for Good Governance, through your lens, what's a victory for an organization like yours? You all are around when there are a lot of problems and you bring these problems to light, but someone says, well, what's a victory for you? Oh, a victory is when we can um, either through either through a cooperative uh, effort or through persuasion or many times, unfortunately, when the guy in black robes has to tell the state officials, you know what, you got to count the votes. Mm-hmm. You got to make a secure system. You know, you have got to protect the voters. I don't know if any state gets it right, but is there a state that you all look to that is a model of they're doing something right? I won't say perfection. Yeah, sure. Um, You know, there is no state that we would say does it all right, but um, virtually every state has a more reliable system than Georgia when you put all the pieces together. I will say that from a security standpoint, um, California does a tremendous amount of uh, diligent work under their secretary's office. They are willing to bring in uh, computer scientists, cybersecurity scientists, and help them truly evaluate their systems. Uh, Michigan um, does, does the same. There are many states that, um, that really work a lot harder on cybersecurity. And Colorado is an example of a state that uh, worked to try to get audits in place. Mm-hmm. They use all hand-marked paper ballots, as you know, from their all-mail balloting. Not that I love all-mail balloting, but they have spent years working on security measures for those mail ballots. The Dominion system itself was, was not approved for certification in Texas. They're not allowed to use it because of all its vulnerabilities. These are not reliable, secure systems, despite well, what Raffensperger wants to pronounce. All the time. Well, listen, Marilyn, the state spent $107 million on these machines. It's highly unlikely that they're going you know, send them back or, you know, go to another vendor. Is there a solution with these machines that can work with the machines? Not those machines. They will never be secure. They can, they're only going to get worse. They will never be secure. But, Rose, what they've got is they've got the pieces of a working system. They just need to put those touch screens, the backup batteries that are causing all the electrical problems, the printers. They need to just go put those in the landfill. In fact, send them back to the vendor and get a get a hundred million dollar refund, but keep the working parts of the system that are simple, easy to use, and create an auditable trail. It's a simple solution. It's what we've been recommending for two years plus. Well, perhaps they can be recycled. Some people don't want them going to the landfill. 
<laughs> well, okay, I, that was a, that was I, I should have used a bit. How about we send them back to the vendor in exchange for a check? How's that? I asked Professor Hassan this, and I'll ask you, how optimistic are you come November? Now we know there might be some problems, but how optimistic are you come November that? I mean, we do have a runoff, but it, maybe it'll be a little bit better than what this state has been experiencing and others with the primaries. And, and some states, have you said, it hasn't been any problems, but Georgia had some problems, obviously. I'm not very optimistic uh, for Georgia. I'm optimistic on a more national scale. Other states do have, they're more serious about controls. They're more serious about getting every vote counted. They're more serious um, about um, not letting these things happen. Unfortunately, in Georgia, the election officials, particularly Secretary Raffensperger and the state election board, are so married to this particular complex setup that there is really no way to make it simple enough to work. So I recommend people vote by mail this time and go to the extra effort to do it in the, the nonprofits out there who, who work on uh, voter protection really need to help support the system of, of voting by mail this time, even though I'm not a vote by mail advocate normally. You know, there's reason for hope if we as the public demand it of our election officials at the county level and at the state level. Rose, there's one other place where there is a lot of opportunity for improvement in that we, the public, can really access. And that is our county election boards. Those are generally bipartisan boards in every county in Georgia, not every county, but almost all counties in Georgia, have a bipartisan election board. They're county leaders. We can find the appointees to that election board. Those election boards have a huge amount of power to stop the problems, but they are not using it. Election integrity activist and vice president and executive director for the Coalition for Good Governance, Marilyn Marks, thank you so much for returning to the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Raz. I appreciate being here. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.